from Genesis to Revelation today, so hang on. I'm telling you, you got to keep up. It's going to be busy. I am fighting a cold, but I did not do the medicine thing because people tell me I talk too fast already. So we're going we're gonna to be going. Very first book, very first chapter. As you're getting there, I want you to think about how we end the Lord's Prayer. We typically say these words, right? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And some of you would insist, and ever. It's got to say forever and ever. My wife and I argue about that. And then we say amen, right? This piece, though, is known as the doxology, and it was actually added, most scholars think, around the 4th or 5th century A.D. So it's a part of the prayer that's been around for a long time. Some translations of the scriptures don't, don't have it in there. Some do. But what I want to do today as we start to wrap up this series is I want to talk to you about the idea of God's glory. And to do that, you have to start at the very beginning. You have to start in Genesis to understand what we mean when we talk about God's glory. Now, hang on, because Genesis 1 gets deep. All right, Genesis 1-1, here's what it says. In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be... Light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, I'm going to blow your mind with Genesis 1 here for just a little bit. Check this out. God, in the beginning, God did what? He created, and the Spirit was doing what? The Spirit was hovering, and then God spoke. He said. So we have God, Spirit, hovering. We have God creating, and we have God speaking. There are three things that God is doing. Now, we could spend hours on these first four verses. We won't, but I could. Here's some of what we need to recognize for today. Genesis 1 is a creation account. If you were to read this in the Hebrew, it is a brilliant, brilliant poem. It is an amazing act of poetry. The very first act of God in this passage is to create what? What did God create very first? This is participation today. You got to wake up because I'm going fast, okay? What did God create first? No. In the beginning, God created light. He said, let there be light. Good. Now, you got to wake up, folks. Come on. Now, here's the real question. What's the light that he created? Oh, now you're all scared to answer, right? It's like that teacher, right? So he created some of you. How many of you would say the sun? Like he created the sun. No, that's day four. Day four, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky. So what is the light that he created? We're not sure. That's the answer. We don't know. But there's something about it. There's something here in Genesis 1 that God is choosing to create light. I believe it's the light of his own glory. It's his self-revelation. He's saying, look at me. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And we didn't need the sun. We didn't need the moon. We didn't need the stars. Now, Genesis 1 gets even cooler if you look at it in the original Hebrew. Now, listen, I want you to go with me on this. Not as science text right now, okay? As poetry. Genesis 1 verse 1 in the Hebrew. Guess how many words it has? Seven. Seven is a big number in Genesis 1. Do you know why? Because God created in how many days? Well done. Now you're catching on. In the very center of Genesis 1 verse 1, in the very center of those seven words, what's the center of seven? Someone tell me, math majors. Four. Well done. The very center word is the word et, E-T, in our language. In Hebrew, it is the word aleph and tav. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This word in the center of the very first verse that has seven words, the center word encompasses the beginning letter and the ending letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Do you remember clear over in Revelation where God says, I am what? The alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the 
Omega. Guess what letter that is in the Greek alphabet? It's the last one, right? Genesis 1 verse 2 has 14 words in Hebrew. That's two times. Seven. Well done. Genesis 1 verse 3 then begins the seven days. It's the first day. Genesis 1 verse 14. You don't have time to look at all these. I don't either, but we're going to get to it later on. Genesis 1 verse 14 says that he would create these things to serve as signs to mark the sacred times. Now, understand, that's not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means feasts. Guess how many feasts the Jewish people had? You guys are picking up. Well done. The end of the Genesis creation narrative, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, it ends with three sentences. Each of those sentences has seven words in it. Seven matters. Here, it gets even cooler. In Genesis 1 and 2, the reference to land, firmament, earth is made 21 times. That's seven times. You guys are so good. The reference to skies are made 21 times. That's seven times three. The references to light and day are made seven times in day one, and again, seven times in day four. Living creatures are referenced seven times in days five and six. God's name is referenced in the Hebrew 35 times. He matters. That's a sermon, okay? That's seven times five. God saw that it was good. Guess how many times he saw that it was good? Seven. God speaks. Guess how many times? No, 10. He speaks 10 times. So we go, why would God speak 10 times? Maybe we move into this idea of the 10 commandments, which by the way, be when people would have understood not as commandments, but as the 10 words. However, God says, let there be. When he speaks, he says, let there be. Guess how many times? Seven times. And then he speaks three more times to say, let us make man be fruitful and multiply. And behold, I have given to you. Seven times in relation to let there be, three times in relation to what he wants humanity to live into. Everything about this passage builds towards the seventh day. Day one, God creates light and darkness day and night. Watch this. Day four, he fills the light and darkness with the stars, the sun, the moon. Day two, he creates the waters in the sky. Day five, he fills the waters with fish, the sky with birds. Day three, he creates land, plants, vegetation. Day six, he fills those things with animals and humanity. And day seven, he says, let's rest. Let's enjoy this. Right? See, there's a function of Genesis 1 where God is forming day 1, day 2, day 3, and then in day 4, 5, 6, he's filling it up. I want you to understand this matters. In the ancient Near East, there were many, many, many seven-day construction projects. You can read literature throughout the Near East, and you will find references to typically temples being built over the course of seven days because temples were the dwelling place of the gods, the places where heaven met earth. So Exodus 39 and 40 tells us that they consecrated the tabernacle of God for seven days. 1 Kings 6 verse 38 tells us that Solomon's temple took how many years to build? Any ideas? Seven. Well done. You guys are doing so good. See, God creates holy space. He creates all of creation, and he says, this is glorious. This is really good. And then it says he rests. However, he does not rest as we do. God did not lay down and take a nap. God was not tired. God rested by enjoying the glory. 
he inhabited. He stepped into, he began to engage. So the cues that we start to pick up on from this story in Genesis 1 is that the creation itself, all of the earth, all of the heavens, was the glory of God being made present in the holiness of his creation. See, the entire world that God created was his temple. Look at it all. It's brilliant. God says, I want to be in this. And so he dwells with Adam and Eve. His glory was everywhere. And when God rests, he inhabits that creation with the fullness of his glory. See, God was not just building a universe, but a place for himself to dwell with this glory of his creation. Are you with me so far? That's one chapter. I got 66 books to go. Everywhere, we could say, was holy. Everywhere God was, was holy. So when God creates humans... Adam and Eve, he gives them two commands. He tells them to do two things. Watch this. He tells them, he says, I want you to abad and to shamar. I want you to work and keep. I want you to work the creation and keep the creation. He says creation is glorious, so you as humanity should care for the glory of creation. Take care of my glory. Now, as civilization extends, God forms his people as the Israelites. He leads them out of slavery in Egypt, and they wander the wilderness for how many years? Anybody know? Not seven. Forty. For 40 years. And as they find themselves in the wilderness, God says, you know what? You're in the wilderness. Sin has separated you from me. I can no longer dwell with you. However, set up this tabernacle. I have a picture of the tabernacle. Guess what? That's not a real photograph. Nobody was there. Okay? Some of you will get that later. The tabernacle, though, was a holy space where God's glory would inhabit and dwell. So although sin had corrupted the entire glory of creation, God says, build a tabernacle in the wilderness, and I will go and I will dwell there. And when the people of Israel saw the glory ahead of them, they were to move, they were to follow. And when it resided in the tabernacle, they were to slow down and wait because the tabernacle was their church. The place they understood God to be dwelling. And check this out. The priests of that day, they were known as the Levites. Everybody say Levites because you need to wake up. The ones, they were given the charge of the tabernacle. And they were told to do two things in the tabernacle. Guess what they were? To abad and shamar, work and keep the tabernacle. Keep the glory of God's dwelling. Numbers 3, 7 says they are to perform, that's Shamar, duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work, that's Abad, of the tabernacle. So God originally says to Adam and Eve, care for the glory of my creation. Then when they build the tabernacle, he says, care for the glory of my tabernacle. Rest in my glorious presence. So this tabernacle was the mirror image of what God had done with humanity and creation, the place where his glory had dwelt. All the earth was represented in the people caring for the tabernacle. Humans were to guard the holiness of all creation. The Israelites were to guard the holiness of the tabernacle. And when they settled in Israel, the promised land, the tabernacle was then established as what? Anybody know? The temple. And the temple was no longer portable. It was no longer tear down and set up. Anybody here when we did tear down and set up every week? That was awesome. Praise God for temples, right? Second Chronicles 5, we're told that the priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now, this is the Ark where God's glory dwelt. And when they were in the wilderness, they carried the Ark. They carried the glory of God. And when they built the temple, they said, bring the Ark in, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim, the angels in the temple. Verse 13, the trumpeters, the musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpet cymbals. By the way, they had drums in the early church. Come on, let's preach. And other instruments. The singers raised voices, raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good. They were singing the same song we were. 
He is good. His love endures forever. Then, watch, the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There was so much glory, the priests couldn't do their job. Isn't that awesome? That's not white American worship. You'll get that later too. The temple was the holy place. It was the intersection of heaven and earth. It was the place where God said, I will meet with my people there. If you wanted to find Yahweh, to find God, you went to the temple. You offered sacrifices. You cleansed yourself. And then you went back out into the unholy world and you tried to maintain your righteousness. And by the way, in the temple, the further in you went, the holier you had to be. The closer you got to glory, the more glorious you had to be. But something happened in the story of Israel and the temple and the religion of the Jews was defiled in ways that God was not pleased with. Injustice happened. The poor were cast aside. The weak were taken advantage of. The lesser pushed away. The worship of Yahweh tainted with the establishment of religion. And God was not pleased. So his people were exiled. They were captured. They were oppressed historically by foreign powers, the Persians, the Assyrians, Babylon, and finally Rome. And they found themselves wondering, where is God? Where is God's glory? And the prophets told them, because prophets always tell you, right? We all need some prophets in our lives and the prophet said, you're being judged. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel painted this vivid picture involving the temple. Ezekiel 10, we'll have this on the screen, but you can look it up. Ezekiel 10, verse 18. Here, here's the image that the prophet Ezekiel paints. It says, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherub. Remember when, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in? Now God's presence says, I'm, I'm out of this place. Verse 19. It says, while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. He has this crazy vision of the glory of God leaving with the angels. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. That's the temple. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Now skip over to verse 22. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. You know what God does? Peace out, temple. And he walks over to the mountain in the east and he sits down. He leaves. The glory of God says the temple has become so corrupt, I'm done with it. I'm out of here. You're saying you're pursuing me, but you don't care about justice. You're saying that you want to worship God, but you don't care about your life. So let's summarize where we are. God creates the world. The world, the whole world is his dwelling place, full of glory and light. God rescues his people, and he leads his people through the wilderness, and they, quote, unquote, house him in a place called the tabernacle. And it's his glory that leads them. Then they get the promised land of Israel. They build a temple, and his glory enters the temple. The holier you are, the closer you can get to God. Priests go into the Holy of Holies. Unclean people are left outside. And historically, the presence of God is it filled the earth, and it was accessible to all in the garden. He walked with Adam and Eve is now separate from humanity in some holy place because of their sin. And when we get to Ezekiel, we see God fed up with their, their, their sinfulness. And he says, I'm done. And he leaves the temple, the place where they knew to go find him. And he sits down on the mountain east of Jerusalem outside the city. But, and the prophets always had a but. The but was the hope that God promised. See, the hope that one day all would be made well. The hope that one day God, who had departed his people, who had left the temple, taken the glory to that mountain east of the city, would one day return. See, clear over in Ezekiel 43. We got 33 chapters before we get any hope, by the way. That's sometimes how prophets work. 
verse 1, here's what it says. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward, guess which direction? The east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, not just the temple. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So there was a hope, even for Ezekiel, that said one day the glory is going to return. The temple will be filled again, but it was different this time because he says it will never, ever leave. God was promising when my glory comes back to the presence of my people, it will never be defiled. Sin will never ruin the glory of God again. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk, everybody say that quickly. Habakkuk says it this way. Habakkuk 2 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there's this trajectory where what happened at creation was defeated by sin. God's glory was housed in a temple, and now the prophets say, no, 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 that's all going to be reversed. The glory of God's going back out into the world. So I want you to think about this. Sin causes God to walk away, like we see in Ezekiel, and the people are left in exile with the hope that one day, one glorious day, God will return And take up his presence among the people again. But at this time, at that time, the glory would spill out. No longer for righteous and the priests. And not just for the Jews anymore. The glory would fill the whole earth. And this is what, listen, this is what the Israelites were praying for, hoping for, longing for. When Jesus teaches his disciples, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. He says all of it's God's. Now, can I show you a couple more things? You don't, you don't have a choice. <laughs> Jesus messes with this idea of glory and the temple because he actually embodies the hope that the Israelites were waiting for. L- look at Matthew 24. Here, here's what it says at the very beginning of Matthew 24. Jesus has been teaching in the temple with his disciples. Verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to his buildings. I love this moment because this is what people do. Look at this building. We could be a church here. Seven locations in eight years. I've heard it. (laughs) Have you thought about this building? No. Never noticed that it was empty for seven years. Never paid attention. Yes, I've noticed that. Oh, but but look. This is what the disciples are doing. Jesus, look at this temple. Jesus, if they would give you the stage, think what you could do in the temple. Verse 2. Jesus says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Huh? (laughs) Right? Don't miss this. Jesus was countering their expectations. See, based on the Jewish, Jewish assumptions, the temple would last forever. Based on what Ezekiel said, God would dwell with his people forever. The glory would go out from there. God would fill the temple again. But Jesus had a different understanding. Jesus is always messing with people's understanding, by the way. He goes in and he flips over tables when the temple's been corrupted. He preaches in the streets, and here he leaves the temple, and he tells his disciples, this whole building is going to be laid to waste. And it was, by the way, in 70 AD, the whole thing was torn down, which would have been mind-blowing to those who thought he was the Messiah and thought he was the one that was going to restore God's glory. He says, it's not going to look like what you think. The glory of God is not going to be in the places that you think it should be in. He actually embodies this in a different place, in a different way. John chapter 8, it says this in verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, And at dawn, verse 2, he appeared again, where? In the temple 
courts. So he's hanging out in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery who, by the way, didn't really belong in the temple courts according to their laws. Maybe you know this story, maybe you don't, but notice this. Jesus is in the temple courts and he's come there from the Mount of Olives. And as he's there, the religious leaders bring in this woman caught in adultery, and they bring every ounce of their religious judgment right to the middle of the most religious place in their world. Isn't the church today often where we experience the most judgment? And they ask him to share his opinion of whether she should be killed or not, because the law says, Moses says, she should. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus utters perhaps the most amazing words of his ministry career in verse 7. He says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And and watch their response in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away. Where did they go away from? Where did they leave? The temple. (laughs) They were in the temple courts, the religious leaders. And Jesus is kind of going, hey, you don't really belong here. At one at a time, the older ones first, until only, watch this, Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, this is a beautiful story. We love this story of forgiveness. It's grace embodied. But the part that maybe you've never seen is that in the moment of incredible grace, Jesus does something amazing. He causes the religious people to leave the temple and welcomes the sinner into his glory. He says, when we get religion out of the way, then the broken and the lost can be received into my glory. I got to show you one more because there's too many. I've got like page, page, page. Matthew 21, Jesus' final approach to Jerusalem before he would face the cross, before he would be arrested, suffered, and crucified. It's the last section of Matthew's book. He's consciously walking toward his death, facing down all that would destroy him, and he is Once again, on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, Matthew 21, verse 1, here's what it says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and he quotes the prophet here, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now look at verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. They shouted this word. What did they say? Hosanna. Everybody say Hosanna. Now, we know that is a church word, but let me tell you something. In this day and age, this was a political slogan. This was like make America great again or something else that you might resonate with. I I don't know, but they're saying Hosanna because it's a political chant that says save us. Save us from Rome. So he's riding in on a donkey to the celebration of politics. Hosanna to the son of David, they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, I want to say to you, this may not feel like it relates to the glory or to the temple much, but I want you to catch something that they never told you in the Easter services around Palm Sunday. You never learned this, I guarantee it. Do you remember where Ezekiel said God's glory went after it got up and left the temple? Where did it go? To the mountain on the east. And do you remember where Ezekiel said the glory would return from? From the mountain on the east. Now, just out of curiosity, do you know what mountain sits just east of Jerusalem? I got a picture of it. Bring bring that picture up. That's looking down at Jerusalem from the mountain east of it. Guess what we call this mountain? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. 
So check this out. This is so powerful. Jesus, the one who has told his disciples, I want you to pray for God's kingdom, for his power and his glory to be restored to the world, for the kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, who had turned over tables in the temple, welcomed sinners in the temple, and told his disciples that this temple would one day be destroyed. This Jesus hops on a donkey and humbly rides from the Mount of Olives, from the east into Jerusalem, to the political chance of glory, longing for him to be made king and make his glory known. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the glory the Jews had waited on. What they didn't realize was the glory was coming back in a way that they never expected. Jesus was coming back to their place. There's this last story that I got to show you, and then I'm going to make my point today. It's been a long road. There is a point. It's a moment after Jesus ascended to heaven and the church was born. Paul's preaching across the Roman world, literally proclaiming the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And he's in this massive city of Corinth preaching the gospel in the synagogue. Now, understand what a synagogue was. A synagogue was a small town's temple. It was the religious gathering place of the Jews. It was the temple placed in local communities. So if they couldn't make it to Jerusalem, wherever the megachurch was, they would go to the small churches, right? That's what they would do. And the place the dispersed Jews went to make themselves as the synagogue is where Paul has been preaching repeatedly. In Acts 18, here's what it says in verse 4. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Paul's hanging out in this Corinthian city every Sabbath day. Hey, you need to know who Jesus is. I want to tell you about Jesus. But what he finds is rejection. The religious people, the Jewish people who spent their time in the religious settings, keep rejecting his message and even become, as the text says in Acts 18, abusive. And Paul finally has enough. Look at verse 6 of chapter 18. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, can I just tell you, if I preach that message and walked out, you guys would be like, what in the world? Just shaking out my clothes against you, right? But that's what he does. He's put up with so much religious abuse, so much harassment, so much rejection of the message of Christ that he says, I'm finished it says, then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Now watch, this is the part. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So, so don't miss this. This is so cool. The leader of the synagogue, the most religious leader in town who makes his living at the synagogue, listens to Paul week in, week out, week in, week out in the holy place, supposedly, and rejects the message with so many others. So Paul walks away from the place where the glory was supposed to be and begins preaching the gospel in the house right next door. And it's here in that house that the synagogue leader finally meets Jesus and gets baptized. You can't write these stories. So what's the point? I got one point today. You ready? Not three. Uh, we're not doing Baptist sermon today. Just one point. Sometimes we have to leave our temples to find God's glory. Sometimes we have to get out of the religious stuff to find the glory of God. We called this series As in Heaven. And throughout the whole thing, I've been inviting you to start to pray this prayer, to enter into conversations with Jesus by understanding that when we build that relationship with Jesus, even in the words of this prayer, we're actually stepping into and surrendering to the reality of being the agents of the kingdom of God, submitting and committing to bring heaven to earth. 
See, the problem, though, is that so many of us are caught up in temples where there's no glory. So many of us are worshiping in religious places where there is no glory. See, the temple mentality contains things. It says that you have to go further in to get holier. So the temple mentality says that our faith should be contained to Sundays. And so we show up on Sunday mornings looking for God for 75 minutes a week versus the encountering of Christ every single day of our lives. And we miss that. The temple mentality says that faith is contained to rules or behavior, thinking God is going to be happier with you if you follow some unspoken set of rules. Can I just say to you, God overturned the rules for a woman caught in adultery, and you're just there with her? It's not about the rules. The rules said she should have been stoned, and he forgave her. The temple mentality says that it's contained to religious performance. So if I just behave better, if I just obey those rules, if I, if I can get to church more this year than last year, listen, you'd say that New Year's every year, you're not going to do it. Take the guilt off. Stop containing Jesus to the religious performance. Stop containing glory to the performance. Sometimes we contain the glory with our theology or our style. We think people can only come to Jesus through the programs of the church or the preaching of the church or the building of the church. And what is, what if Jesus wants you to host a dinner so your friends will come to know him? See, I wonder what would happen if some of you stopped inviting your friends to church to meet Jesus because I'm preaching a message and started inviting them into your house to a dinner where they can meet Jesus because you love them. That's what God's glory looks like spilling out into the whole earth. See, I want you to know this, to recognize this, to embody this. God's desire has never, ever been for there to be select holy places for the religious few. His plan, his dream, his vision has always been that the whole world would be holy, that all of creation would be glorious, that there is no breakdown between secular and sacred. How many of you grew up with that breakdown? You went to some Christian camp or conference center, and they told you all secular music was bad, and so you burnt your albums, your CDs, your eight-track tapes, if we go way back. Your, I don't know, do you burn iPods today? Does that happen? I don't know. I got rid of so much good music because they told me it was evil. See, we've got this dichotomy where we think they're secular and they're sacred. And God says, no, everything is spiritual. Everything is glorious. So Paul goes around quoting Cretans to the Cretans. He's like, you're acting like a bunch of Cretans. Like, look at your own poets. That's what he says. He uses the culture of their day to draw out the holiness. See, God's desire has always been that when he creates heaven and earth, that they are sinking up, that heaven and earth would collide. And one day, listen, now you didn't think I could get to Revelation. Here we go. One day he will restore that whole dream of his. Look at Revelation 21, verse 10. Here's what he says. Here's what the writer of Revelation says. The spirit carried me away to a mountain great and high. I don't know if it was a mountain of olives. I bet it was a bigger mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from where? Out of heaven, from God. Can I just say, if you're in times theology, you guys always want to talk about Revelation. I'm going to talk about it for a minute. If you're in times theology is about mass evacuation of a planet that God's going to blow up, that's not what this passage says. You got to wrestle with this. Because in this passage, what Jesus told his disciples would, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is actually what happens. Can you imagine that? It's actually heaven coming down to earth, verse 11. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Now watch, verse 22, skip down. This is my favorite part. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. That's why I think in Genesis 1, when God created light, it was his glory. Because it took till day four to even get the sun, the moon, the stars. And Revelation, by the way, is the move from a garden to a city. It's culture excelling, progressing, multiplying, developing into the world that God made it to be. See, I want us to start dreaming this dream with God, praying this dream with God, walking through Mondays, through Saturdays, through Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and yes, even Sundays, asking ourselves where God might want to reveal his glory to us. Jesus' followers found glory everywhere. They found the tables that they shared meals at glorious. Can you just say tacos are glorious? (laughs) They're full of the glory of God. They ate bread and wine They danced at weddings. They looked in the face of lepers and those that society had cast out. They saw a woman in poverty giving pennies in the worship service. They watched a child bring some bread and fish that would feed thousands. Every single moment was sacred. Every single moment was spiritual. And every single moment was glorious and laced with the breath of heaven. And the glory was the place of rest. See, we think about Sabbath. We think about rest as recovery from exhaustion. That's not how God created rest. God created rest so that it was life-giving. It would fill us up so that we could pour ourselves back out. It was not out of exhaustion. It was out of enjoyment. Rest was for pleasure, for recreation, not for just recovery. Friends, I wonder what this would mean if we truly believed everywhere is loaded with the glory of God. Students, listen, elementary, middle, high school, look at me right now. I, I know I'm boring sometimes, but just for a second, I want you to look at me. Your classroom is full of the glory of God. Your classroom right now is full of the glory of God. There are people God loves deeply and passionately in your classroom, and he wants you to walk beside them because it is glorious to see your friends encounter a God who loves them passionately. Friends, your workplaces are full of the glory of God. I know some of you are like, heresy! No, it is! Your workplace is full of the glory of God. And when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory. You are including your workplace because everything is spiritual. Your kitchens are glorious. Don't look at your spouse. Whoever does the cooking, if they struggle, it's, it's, they're, they're being sanctified. It's being redeemed, right? It's full of glory. Watch this. We're going to get uncomfortable. Your bedrooms are glorious. Because it's the place of intimacy. It's the place God allowed us, invited us, and encourages us to know at the deepest level the glory of another human being. Your dorm room students are glorious. They may not smell glorious, but they are. Your quiet loneliness is glorious. Some of you in those quiet spaces where you're so lonely, so longing, God wants to meet you with glory in those places. Your public insecurity is glorious. Your private addiction, when God rescues you from that, that's going to be so glorious. There's glory to be found everywhere. And what if you left your temple to find Jesus' glory in the streets? What if you stepped into his glory with rest and recreation? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
I want to invite the band to come, and as they do, I want to say to you, we are entering a season where we become so aware of God's glory. We begin to talk about Easter. We begin to talk about resurrection and hope and victory, right? The promise of God's world being made right. And I want to say to you, as we go into this season, I want, the reason that we started this year with a series on prayer is because I want to invite us as a church. Now listen, some of you are going to check out on me right here, and this is the most important part. I want us to enter this Easter season, maybe now more than ever before, on our knees asking God, would you do something amazing in our community this Easter? Would you do something amazing as we build towards this season? You know what we did? Our leaders sat down and we said, what do we want to do with Easter? And we said, what if we didn't do this egg drop thing? Everybody knows the egg drop thing, right? Like, oh, it's the high school, thousands of people, really cool. So we said, what if we just turned whole, the whole week into how can we love our community? Remember last January, not, this, not like a few days ago, but like last January, we <laughs> preached a series called Love is the Movement. So we, we've titled Easter, This is Love. Here's what that means. All week, you're going to be invited into being a part of watching God's kingdom come to earth in reality. So Monday, go ahead and bring up that. Do we have the slides in there, Joan? Are they not in there? Okay. So that whole week, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Monday, we're going to try to rent some laundry mats and just give laundry away for free. Just love people. Just do what we can. Tuesday, we want to we want to show up. I, and this is a big dream, but I, I believe we can do it. I want to get like 200 uh, grocery gift cards. Like, you, if you have $100, buy it. If you have $20, do it. If you have $5, do it. And I just want to show up at the grocery stores or the gas stations and give gift cards away and just care for people. Wednesday, we want to show up at the schools and just love the staff and the families of the schools. I think there's an early dismissal that day. Is that right? Does anybody know? We got teachers in this room. You can correct me later. But we just want to show up. Thursday, we want to do meals in homes and just invite people into our homes to care for them. Friday and Sunday, here's what's happening. Saturday, we're going to rest. We're going to Sabbath as well because that's biblical. Friday and Saturday, we've rented out the Performing Arts Center at Wesleyan for the whole weekend. And we're going to do worship and prayer Friday night, and then we're going to have a big Easter party Sunday morning. This is what's happening. We want to put love on display. We just want to say, God, God, use us in whatever way. But can I just say to you, if we don't coat this whole thing with prayer, we're just doing programs and events. We're just asking God to bless our programs, and I don't want to do that. I want to see your friends encounter Christ because you prayed for them in February. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's what this looks like. And so as we conclude this series, as we sing this song we're going to enter into the song of heaven. Revelation 4 says the angels sing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I'm going to open this space to you to pray. You can pray in your seats. You can worship God and just sing these words as the prayer. That's what worship is. Some of you maybe have someone specific in your mind or something specific in your mind, and you would say, I want to come to this altar, and just like the altar in the scriptures, I want to sacrifice my pride. I want to lay this down and say, God, take anything that's in me that's in the way and slaughter it so that you can rise up, so that your glory can be made known. Some of you maybe in this moment, you just say, I'm too broken to pray for anybody else. I just need God to restore what's going on in me, my marriage, my addiction, my shame, my horror, my hurt, my whatever it is. But in this place, in this moment, in this song, we want to come to Jesus in prayer to say, would you make your glory known? Would you fill the whole earth with your glory? Let's pray together. Would you stand with me?